the farming program with our equipped steel stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. We've good news for kids' country education and some new compact kits from JCB to look at this week. So the new 53060 AgriSuper is our latest release in our telescopic handler range and it's rated to lift three tonnes up to a lift height of six metres. And what's so special about sorghum and millets? Should we be growing them? These grains uh, use about a third of the water of other crops and they tend to be more drought resistant, going dormant when there's a drought rather than just burning up. Plus a look at the safety issues surrounding ATVs, crop, livestock and grain market reports, timely agronomy advice for the new season and the weather for the week ahead. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you've had a good week and the harvest is nearing completion. In the news this week, DEFRA has announced that the launch of SFI has been delayed until mid-September, despite assurances that it will be ready for August. Farmers can express interest in the scheme now and will be able to apply from the 18th of September. It means that the SFI's earliest adopters will not see any money until next January. The NFU has described the delays as unacceptable as they come following problems for those applying for the countryside stewardship schemes mid-tier. We'll talk more about this on next week's farming programme. More delays with the post-Brexit border checks rollout being held up for a fifth time until next year, causing concerns over asymmetric trade and the introduction of animal and plant diseases. Since January 2021, the UK food and farming industry has been told on several occasions that a system delivering border checks on food, with additional measures verifying the health and safety of meat products, would be delivered. The government has raised concern that the extra checks on imported goods would worsen inflation and push up prices. We understand that the government will shortly set out the new timetable for the import regime, but there will be little confidence amongst the industry that it will be adhered to. And a new group of young farmers are being sought to work with the NFU and represent the industry for the next year. 18 to 26-year-olds are needed for the NFU Student and Young Farmer Ambassador Programme who will help to represent young farmers in Britain. It's a 12-month programme and successful applicants will fly the flag for the industry at important agricultural and political events. You can find out more on the NFU website. The Louth Christmas charity tractor run is only a few months away. Organiser Taryn Lee is planning something even bigger for next summer. Taryn, what's the plan? We're planning on driving a JCB fast track. James Caswell's come up with the idea and he's donating his fast track for us to do this. We're aiming to drive all the way around the outside of the UK on the coastal routes. How far uh, is that? It's about 4,690 miles, give or take. Excellent. And you're doing this for what? So we're doing it to raise awareness to back British farming and to get it out there and get it to the public knowledge that the need to support the UK farmers. And also, while we're doing it, we're going to raise some money for mental health with the Yellow Wellies Farm Safety Foundation and the Mind Your Head campaign. Brilliant. Now, have you got a date for this yet? So we're aiming between the 20th of June and the 20th of July. We're hoping we can get it done in eight days. And if we do, there's a world record in that as well. Brilliant. And you're planning on starting and finishing where? Well, it's going to be in Lincolnshire. It'll either be Louth or Cleethorpes or some, you know, somewhere around our local area uh, to where we farm. Excellent. Just to make it easier for setting up. Good stuff. And can we find out anything about this and donate yet? 
Uh, no, there's no donation set up yet. We've got to organise that with uh, Yellow Wellies. But all the details will be on our Facebook page, which is Back British Farming and Mental Health. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. And just while you're on, Taryn, have we got a date for the Louth Christmas tractor run yet? Yes, we have. It's Sunday the 17th of December. Right. We'll get that in the diary. All right, Taryn, keep in touch. Let us know when you've got more information and good luck for next year. Spot on. Thank you very much. Some new compact kit for farmers has just been launched by JCB. It's a telehandler, and MD of JCB Agriculture, John Smith, is here to tell us more. So the new 53060 Agri Super is our latest release in our telescopic handler range, or, or Lodor, which is our, our brand name for our, our telehandlers. And the numbers, Steve, really relate to its performance. So it's called a 53060. So what that means is it's in our product group 500, and it's rated to lift three tons up to a lift height of six metres. It's aimed at the um, farming sector, particularly livestock farmers, because although it's got a large lift capacity and lift height, it's what we call a compact machine. And a lot of uh, livestock farms have generally got some space constraints, whether that be height or, or width. So a compact machine is, is useful to improve productivity and, and ease around, around buildings. So we've designed this machine with good performance credentials, if you like, but it's in a compact uh, frame and chassis. So its width and height are, well, depending on the wheels fitted, are below two metres uh, in height and just over two metres in width. So it can get into the smallest areas of, uh, of any livestock farm, really. OK, so what kind of power are we talking about for this? Because this well, has been developed from, was it the 52758? Is that right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So we, we've taken the, uh, the earlier machine, which wasn't compatible with the latest emission regulations, and we've, we've updated it. So we've increased the power to 130 horsepower now, and that's with our own JCB engine in. So that's, that, like the machine, the engine is manufactured locally here in the UK. So uh, 130 horsepower in a compact machine will make this a, uh, a machine that's lively and will pack a punch. Uh, and that's really to give it good productivity. So the, uh, the machine will perform as some of its bigger brothers, if you like, but in a compact uh, chassis and frame. So it's nice and, uh, nice and agile, but still with a lot of power. Okie doke. And one of the buzzwords around agriculture at the moment is regenerative. And I notice you're advertising regenerative hydraulics. What does that mean? So what that means is when the boom, which obviously, you know, handles the bales or the feed, when that's at its uh, full um, extension, it's got a lot of weight in there. When you come to lower that boom in the old way of doing things, you would move the lever in the cab and that would open the valve and that would allow the oil to return to tank. What we do with this regenerative system is it feeds the oil from one side of the hydraulic ram into the other. So it uses gravity to push the oil quickly through the valve and the hydraulic cylinder and it speeds up the cycle time of the hydraulic uh, circuit. So it actually improves the productivity, uh, uses less energy and uh, allows us to be much more efficient and productive. So it gives a nice quick cycle time with the hydraulic system and um, where could we go john for more information about this machine just check out the jcb website and uh, there'll be um all the information you need on there whether that be uh, spec sheets and uh, videos and uh, walk rounds of the machine so it's all available online at, at jcb.com all right john thank you for joining us on the farming program this morning thanks steve Time to head to the fields with a look at the state of play and some important agronomy advice for the new season. Good morning to our crop doctor, Sean Smarling. 
Yes, morning, Steve. More rain then in the last week, but as well as the wet, we are seeing respectably warm, sunny days on the whole. So all in all, not a bad spell of growy weather if you've got oilseed rape in the ground, but just the wrong sort of weather with the rain if you've still got some harvest to gather in. Plenty of wheat still out there the early part of last week. Those late spring barley, most spring beans too, as I said last week. So hopefully you've had the right sort of weather for where you are. Hugely variable though. Last Saturday, for example, I took six millimetres in just over five minutes. A mile up the road they had a bit of drizzle which didn't even stop them combining baling or drilling their rape five miles up the road the other way they took 32 mil so starting with the sugar beet disease levels had as i said last week started to increase more rust out there than mildew this year in the main but fungicides with a strob in them like angle or priory gold etc that we've already put on along with sulfur are easily drying up that mildew and the rust so cospera also being reported now not much of it to see yet but it is there to be found if you look for it and it will come on more so now in these wetter conditions. We do have the right conditions for Cercospora now. Although the BBRO Cercospora map shows that it's not particularly worrying or threatening in this area with our scores below two. Once you get up to six, you start to worry. And those red areas of six plus seem mostly confined to odd coastal areas of the east. So do keep your eyes open and know what you're seeing in the field. We got registration for Caligula last year, of course, and that was a step up for Cercospora control. Not great, but better than we'd had before. And of course, we now have registration for the use of Revistar XE this season, which is an even bigger step up. But these newer materials are a lot more expensive than the older ones, so be sure you can justify the need and the extra cost before you go spraying. The interval between the T1 and the T2 fungicide in beet, by the way, is usually between four and five weeks, depending on pressure. And as with all fungicides and all crops, very important that you time them properly. So it's when the conditions and the disease pressure itself dictates that you need to go out again. Watch those harvest intervals as well with the factory soon going to be open you need to be on top of that one and always check the labels for that reason speak to your advisor make sure that you're monitoring the sugar beet crops closely and also don't miss the opportunity to drop in a bit of manganese sulfur bitter salts magnesium when you do go they're cheap but very very effective in making sure these healthy plants remain healthy plenty of magnesium deficiencies showing up in the older leaves along with alternaria and bacterial leaf spot and other things in some areas all of which can be confused with Cercosporus, so know what you're looking at. That said, I think this year's sugar beet crop looks pretty good already, though, and it's clearly been loving that warm, wet, sunny weather that we've had over the last few weeks. So with plenty of growy weather still to come, before you know it, that factory is going to be open, so make sure that you're on top of those harvest intervals. Oilseed rape, starting to see a few issues now as well. Cabbage stem flea beetle and slugs topping the pops in that order. Cabbage stem flea beetle activity, as anticipated, has stepped up several gears in the last few days and remember that pyrethroids are not the be all and end all for control anymore they're part of the tool perhaps but far from being the be all and end all they're not residual and despite promises that are being made by some people out there they will not last you three or four days and give you three or four days protection so therefore if you see threshold damage from cabbage stem flea beetle and that damage is so great as to pose a risk to the crop from direct feeding and as the pyrethroids are the only class of insecticide cleared for use for control in the UK and mainland Europe it's a real and frustrating problem for us that they don't work particularly well and if the flea beetle are resistant to one they're resistant to them all so lambda cyhalothrin cypermethrin deltamethrin or any other pyrethroid is your only choice but this is KDR or knockdown resistance in the cabbage stem flea beetle population and it is now widespread across the UK so if you do use 
pyrethroids, then timing is everything. And that timing is when the adults are physically active. The adult beetle has to be present, of course, in order for you to control them. So because they prefer lower light intensity conditions, we've seen far better results from going just after dark. So get out there with your torch in any fields you're worried about and see if they're active. If they are, that's the perfect time to go out and treat them. Hence, go after dark. And if you sprayed active adults and they're still there later that night or the next day, then another pyrethroid is going to do absolutely no good. So don't waste your time, effort or money. Keep your fingers crossed that the all-seed rape, now with it being a little bit warmer and wetter, is going to outgrow that direct feeding damage. That's the best option, really. And remember, of course, that it's the larvae that are going to do the most damage. So controlling the adults, you control the larvae with that combination of pyrethroid and integrated pest management. We do seem to see a peak of cabbage stem flea beetle activity around this time of year in every season. So fingers crossed we all get away with it without too much damage. We've still got good, warm, long, sunny days, plenty of sunshine lined up. So, you know, I'm getting oilseed rape up and through the ground within five days of drilling. So getting that rape to grow faster than it's being damaged, and we're all tuned into that with seedbed doses of diammonium phosphate and getting the nitrogen on as early as possible. There are, of course, plenty of other miracle products out there like silicon and the many and various snake oils, antifeedants, orange extract, garlic extract, and a whole host of other smelly, sticky, mucky, mysterious products for you to try too. I know an awful lot of people, including myself, who've tried most, if not all of them, with very little tangible success. So it's best to keep your fingers crossed and have an open mind if you do use them. And to be fair, that'll probably do just as much good. To me, leaving long stubbles and applying slurry has probably done me far more good in control than anything else in the past. So just keep your fingers crossed that it's not going to be too bad a year. Slugs showing up all over the place too. Heavy land mostly for now. So if your crop seems to be struggling to come through, just have a dig down. You might well find that these tiny two mil hatchling sluglets are taking the plants before they come through the ground. And a hatch of slugs can take a crop of rape out overnight, particularly if it's a small, backwards, slowly emerging crop on a tight clay seedbed. Volunteer barley romping away too. So you do need to take those volunteers out as soon as the oilseed rape gets big enough to one true leaf or so in order to minimise the competition, not just because of shading, but also because of sucking moisture and nutrients out of the seedbed too. And not to mention the green bridge harbouring disease and aphids. And aphids incidentally also enjoying these conditions and increasingly colonising these volunteers. It's great fun, isn't it? There's a real feel of autumn in the air now. Dewy mornings, the swifts have gone home already, the swallows will only be here for a few more weeks and it'll not be long before some silly sod thinks it's a good idea to go and get some wheat in. I wish I'd worked harder at school sometime, so let's see what the next seven days bring. Thank you, Sean. Sean Sparling, Sparling Agronomy Services, back with us same time next week. Have you ever grown sorghum or millets? No? Well, you're not alone in the UK. Perhaps we should. Find out why, plus hear some good news for kids' country education, the markets and the week's weather next. The Farming Programme with our equipped steel stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years. First, let's talk about ATVs. There's been more in the media recently around issues with safety when using all-terrain vehicles. So the farming programme's Andy Marsh went to the horse's mouth and asked Richard Gregg, commercial manager for the North at BRP, better known to us as Canam, one of the leading ATV manufacturers, to talk us through the safety issues with these vehicles. Um, the safety issues are um, usually coming back to the way that they're used or uh, just a, a bit of a lack of knowledge and a lack of education in terms of how to use them correctly. So everybody's taught 
how to drive a car. Um, and, you know, therefore, if you can drive a car, you have to pass a proficiency test to enable you to go onto a road. There isn't specifically a uh, legal requirement for uh, passing a proficiency test to drive a, an ATV or, or an SSD in an off-road environment. Having said that, of course, if you use one on the road, then you do need to have a license in place there. But, um, and this is what a lot of people don't realise, that as a, a farmer or as uh, someone involved in farming and agriculture or forestry, for example, if you employ somebody to do a job where part of that job means that they have to ride or use uh, some sort of off-road vehicle, then they have a duty of care under um, what's called pure work regulations. I think that's, please don't quote me on this too closely, but I think it's provision and use of work equipment regulation. They have a duty of care under that to provide correct PPE, you know, safety equipment and training to the person for that job. So although there isn't specifically a rule that says you need to take a test to operate one of these things, there is a requirement under those regulations to provide uh, your um, user with access to safety training and, and riding equipment. And so usually those issues occur in the danger uh, when people aren't using them correctly. And that's probably because they don't know of what can go wrong. And that can be, you know, when... Uh, you're riding something that's overloaded. You're perhaps using it on a, a piece of ground, which is um, on a slope. You might be towing a load, which is too much for the machine. And probably the most dangerous of all is not using a helmet. And that we see time and time again, sadly. I would imagine a lot of farmers who use these will know exactly what the safety procedure is. But there's a small amount who may not pay full attention to it. You could be right there. I mean, every single vehicle uh, sold responsibly in the UK, and I'm talking about usually the major manufacturers that you know would be sort of similar to ourselves, they all have warning labels on their machines um, pointing out, for example, the age that you should be when you uh, operate one of these things, the fact that you know certainly on most ATVs would be homologated as single-seat vehicles, so you shouldn't carry passengers. Having said that, BRP is one of the companies that does have machines which are homologated and designed to be two-seaters but by and large most of them would be single-seat machines and again you see people you know sat on the back racks sat on the front racks and things like that so although you know there's a lot of warning labels out there a lot of farmers i would suggest have been using them for many many years and for the vast majority of the time they probably don't have you know that many accidents or you know hiccups with them so then you get into this cycle of, of familiarity breeds contempt and it's uh, not being aware of what can go wrong and the fact that they've maybe been uh, doing it for such a long time and never had a serious accident that made them think, okay, well, we don't need to uh, worry about wearing a helmet. And then inevitably at some point when a bad accident does happen and they're not wearing a, a safety helmet or, or using it in a manner which could cause them to part company with the machine, that's when the really serious stuff occurs. And it's, it usually comes down to um, just a bit of a lack of knowledge of these things, sadly. Now, you have a specific user safety guide for this. Tell us just a little bit of detail about that and how we can access it. Yeah, so um, first of all, as you as you already sort of mentioned, you know, there, there are uh, there's warning labels and, and there's stuff out there that people can access. So first of all, you look at and see uh, what's already on the machine, you know, the most visible things. So that the, the safety warning guys that are there that tell you about tyre pressures. That's one of the key, key things is making sure your tyre pressures are correct. So that's really easy. It's things like getting into the habit of doing some daily checks. Okay, so where do you find that? Firstly, every you know uh, responsibly supplied machine 
should come with the owner's manual and every single piece of safety advice is in there. So use the machine within its capabilities. Make sure you check your tyre pressures, check um, oil and fluid levels before you go on a ride, all that kind of stuff. Um, and hopefully most of the dealers would be supplying these machines with um, a copy of a brochure or at least showing the, the, the customer where they can find that, which is usually on um, manufacturer websites if they don't you know, get given a hard copy, for example. But then in addition to that, um, ourselves and uh, the other sort of key players in the industry, um, most of us are part of um, an organization called EASI, which is the European ATV Safety Institute. It's uh, a system that we, you know, all of us part fund and run with the main aim of providing more of a safe environment for the users through education and training. All the people who buy uh, a new or used uh, ATV from one of our um, officially recognized dealers will get told about all this and they'll get a, a specific handover which will point out all the features of their machine, how you operate them, how to operate them safe to, safely. And indeed, they then get access to a, a, a safety training course that is provided by a network of nationwide um, EASI instructors. EASI themselves have a website, which is quadsafety.org. In addition to that, um, just to belt and braces it, Can-Am have their own safety uh, charter, which is a responsible rider um, program, which again, they can access via our, our, our homepage. You know, we're very, very passionate about ATV safety because frankly, you know, one person getting seriously hurt or injured is, is too many. So anything we can do to cut that down is uh, is a benefit. So the really important things are wearing a helmet, wearing um, some sort of eye protection, either a built-in visor uh, into a helmet or indeed external supplementary goggles, protection for your hands, so gloves of some sort, covering your arms so that they're, they're, they're protected, protected against um, things like getting scratched or, or anything that can you know impede your control over the machine. Same goes for your legs. Ideally, you want to be fully covered legs over your ankles. And indeed, when it comes to your feet themselves, you want ideally over the ankle boots so that should anything happen, you've got some sort of uh, structure uh, giving you support around your foot and your ankle. I think every person uh, has a responsibility to, to themselves, really, and anyone that they're asking to ride or drive some sort of off-road vehicle is just to consider what can go wrong. Um, just put a little bit of thought into it. And if they get into the habit of checking their, their machines ideally daily before they ride them. Tire pressures is, is one of the key things that invariably, when uh, whenever we're involved in any kind of um, post-accident roundup, tire pressures are one of the things that we always look at, you know, have they been inflated correctly? And invariably, the pressures are wrong. They run very low tire pressures. Again, these are all advised on every single machine as to what the tire pressures should be. And, uh, and, and have a proper read of the manual. You know, it gives you all the information usually in those manuals about how to use them correctly and, and responsibly. Be aware of the environment around you. And if you have a thought about what might go wrong, generally speaking, it's a, a better place for everyone. And uh, you know, hopefully we'll keep people safe at the same time. That's Richard Gregg, Commercial Manager for the North at Canam. Thanks, Richard. Have you ever considered growing sorghum or millets? Almost nobody has in the UK, at least. Should we? What are the benefits? Is it viable in a cooler climate? Nate Bloom is head of Sorghum United, though not a football team, and joins us on the line from India. Welcome, Nate. First, tell us a little bit about sorghum and millets, if you would. 
Well, sorghum and millets are among the first grains that were uh, cultivated by mankind. Uh, and so what that means is that our gut microbiome evolved alongside those grains. And what we see through uh, dozens and dozens of research uh, papers and studies, uh, some even with human trials, uh, what we've seen is that uh, including these grains, re-including them back into the human diet has a plethora of, of health benefits, as well as rebalancing that gut microbiome. And we're talking about things like decreases in inflammatory disease, anti-carcinogenic benefits, um, anti-diabetic benefits, and, and more, and of course, heart health as well. And environmentally, Nate? These grains uh, use about a third of the water of other crops, and they tend to be more drought resistant, going dormant when there's a drought rather than just burning up. Um, and so as we look at uh, some of the changes that are happening in our, our global climate, and of course, uh, you know, there in Europe, all along the Mediterranean basin is kind of right in the bullseye of this. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more countries that are going back to uh, supporting these kinds of grains uh, as a measure of food security. And do you think that might still apply in a colder, wetter climate like the UK? Yes, it will. And, you know, part of the uh, reason sorghum struggles a little bit in the market is because uh, it's so resilient that it typically only gets planted on those uh, those really difficult acres. And the reality is, of course, it'll do fine with more water. Now, it does like a bit of heat, but, uh, you know, in the UK, I would uh, recommend looking at a 60-day variety maybe versus a 90-day variety. We know it can be grown uh, in, in some of the northern climates. Uh, you just have to be careful and watch what variety it is that you're planting. 60-day uh, might be a little, little bit safer. And I've heard there can be lower input costs for this crop. Is that true? Uh, well, there's low input costs, but we have to be cautious when we say this, because when we tell that to farmers, what, what that means to some of them is that they can just plant it and forget it. And that's not entirely true. You have to manage it just like any other grain. So where you get your cost savings is on the cost of seed. Uh, typically costs about uh, where I live in, in uh, near Lincoln, Nebraska, not Lincolnshire, but near Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, it costs about $15 per acre to plant sorghum, uh, you know, versus maybe $35 per acre to plant corn. And then, of course, you have the water usage. Uh, so you're only using about a third of the water. So depending on what you're paying for water on your farm, uh, you know, there's a two thirds savings there. Where people get in trouble is uh, they'll try to scrimp then also on the fertilizer, on the nitrogen. And the reality is it still takes about a pound of nitrogen per bushel. Fascinating stuff. You can find out more about this at sorghumunited.com. Nate Bloom, thanks for joining us on the farming program today. Thank you, Steve. There's good news, and let's face it, we could do with some for the education of disadvantaged kids on farming and the countryside. It's in the form of a big grant from the Agco Foundation. The Country Trust will be getting the grant, and Chief Exec Jill Attenborough, what are you going to do with the money? And who are the Agco Foundation? Okay, so the Agco Foundation have provided us with an incredible grant towards our work. And that's a global foundation. And the funds arise from a number of manufacturers of tractors and agricultural equipment. They've come together to make a, a foundation that is aiming to make a real difference globally towards food security and sustainable agriculture. And they've provided you with $100,000, which is, what, just short of £80,000 to the Country Trust. For education, would that be the simplest way of putting it? Yeah, the grant is towards our work, which is about connecting disadvantaged children with the land that sustains us all. So it's farm-centred education, very hands-on, uh, enabling children to get, very often, their first experience of 
where their food comes from, who produces their food, how the land is managed. For some, it's even just their first chance to understand that the countryside exists. They may have very limited opportunities to go beyond their immediate community. So what are you actually going to do with the money then, Jill? The money's going to enable us to uh, grow and sustain our farm discovery programme. And farm discovery uh, uh, for us is day visits to working farms for children from disadvantaged communities. So the funding's going to deliver, uh, allow us to deliver 70 farm discovery visits for just under 2,000 children next year. It's going to enable us to uh, work with the farmers who welcome children to their farms. It's going to uh, enable us to ensure that transport costs aren't a barrier to participation. Lots of schools really cutting back on their visits because they can't afford coaches and they can't ask parents for contributions either. So we'll have transport subsidies to offer schools. And we're going to be providing resources for teachers to sustain the impact of those visits because it's all very well having a, a fabulous visit But if teachers don't feel confident or don't feel equipped to continue to nurture the interest and the curiosity that children have started to feel, then it's a wasted opportunity. So we'll be supporting teachers as well. Very true. Now, is this something that schools can apply for? Who will will be driving uh, where this goes next? The Country Trust has a website, countrytrust.org.uk, and all of our opportunities, our programmes are explained there. Schools can contact us uh, to find out whether they are able to take part in uh, any of our programmes, farm discovery, food discovery, our residential programme, our farm in a box programme. We work with schools that are serving the most disadvantaged children uh, in England and North Wales. So we look for a higher than average percentage of children eligible for free school meals. We also work with children with special educational needs and disabilities And we work with those supporting other disadvantaged groups, refugees and asylum seekers, young carers, uh, looked after children, that sort of thing. So eligibility is important, but encourage schools to go and look at our website uh, and see what's available. Jill, this is going to make quite a bit of difference to some kids, isn't it? Uh, not, Not very least, actually, just understanding where their food comes from. So more power to your elbow. Jill Attenborough, Chief Exec of the Country Trust, thanks for joining us on the Farming Programme this morning. Thanks very much. Links FM Farming. Market reports. Starting with livestock and from Masons and Partners at Louth Livestock Market, Henry Simpson. Good morning, Henry. Good morning, Stephen. Welcome to another weekly roundup from Louth Livestock Market from Monday the 28th of August. Prime cattle, prime steers all in average to 275 pence per kilo, with prime heifers all in average to 293 pence per kilo, which was a handful of cattle forward this week. Top of the day was John Scolia Bournemouth with a prime steer to 277 pence per kilo or £1,609.50. The top in the pence per kilo went to JS Books of Strubby with a heifer to 304 pence per kilo and £1,583.40. That wraps up the cattle, now onto the sheep. A slightly larger offering of prime numbers compared to last week with just over 400 forward, so an SQQ of 255 pence per kilo and an all in average of 256 pence per kilo. Top price of the day goes to Todd Farming at £170 per head. And also pence per kilo was topped by Todd Farming with a pen of nine achieving £298 per kilo. It's clear that good meat is key with the heavy, well-finished lambs topping the trade. That wraps up the prime lambs. Now onto the cool use. A smaller entry of use this week met with a good trade all round, so an all in average of £101.10 per head. The pick of the day going to LJ Fairman's son achieving £160. 
Now onto the store lambs. A modest run met with a good trade. Once again, saw an average of £87.27. With topping a trade from MJ Morehouse with a pen of six well-shaped lambs at £94 per head. Just as a reminder, tomorrow is a store cattle sale. So we are taking entries for all store prime cool cows and also prime store and cool sheep. Also, this Friday the 8th of September is our second special sale of MV and non-MV accredited breeding sheep and store lambs including the sale of some livestock equipment. For all marketing options and entries, please do not hesitate to contact the team on the usual numbers or on our website. This has been Henry Simpson from the Masons Real Team. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. And for an update on the grain markets, Open Fields' Alice Killam. Morning, Alice. Good morning, Steve. Whilst we were enjoying the August bank holiday weekend, the French market was trading as normal and moved €3.50 lower. Double that up Tuesday and you can see the issue. The pro-farmer crop tour concluded last week with forecasted yields certainly tailing off. Their maize yield would be approximately 2% behind the current USDA numbers with more hot and dry weather to come in the next two weeks. Alongside this, at the start of the week we received the crop progress numbers out of the US, dropping 2% on the week again due to recent hot and dry spell. This doesn't particularly look too bearish to me. For the moment though, the market doesn't want to listen to any potential issues which might happen in the future. It's content in dealing with the here and now, and at the moment there is plenty of product with not much demand. This is a mixture of Eastern European product, which might at some point have been Ukrainian, and some Western European feed product also, which is taking any export buyer that raises its head to do business. For the UK this means Spain and Ireland, and we compete with neither, which is why no feed wheat is going to leave the country for a little while yet, unless it's on an old sale side. What we don't know, of course, is how much the UK will have to export anyway, and it's unlikely we're going to know this for a little time yet. I believe a sensible plan would be to keep selling premium products, with premiums at all-time highs, and sell what you have to move. Selling the carry does make sense to me, with the 24 crop trading at a £10 premium to the 23 crop, but it will take a brave seller to keep going without physical product to rely on. It's the 3rd of August, not the 3rd of June. Two stories to keep an eye on coming out of Russia over the last couple of days. Negative to the market, we know that Presidents Putin and Erdogan are due to meet in the coming days. No doubt the lack of current grain deal is likely to be discussed, but is anything really going to happen here? Interestingly, we've perhaps started to see a little shift at the end of the week with the latest Egyptian wheat tender. Remember these are the largest importers in the world. 240,000 tonnes of wheat were purchased and finally something was bought away from Russia with France providing half and the other half coming from Romania and other Black Sea nations. What this means to the Russians who have been reportedly attempting to stick to their new floor price, we will have to wait for. A higher base price for Eastern European wheat then, or a lowering of the Russian value? Perhaps it might amount to the same thing. What we need either way are buyers and demand. This, I think, is the only thing that is going to shift our markets for the time being. A quick word on the rapeseed market, which having slowly gained some momentum last week, has been hit pretty hard on thin trade. The Pro Farmer tour came in line with the USDA numbers, but the crop progress report was higher than most analysts predicted, despite the hot weather. So we're back to the drawing board. For me, I think this market is just going to stall. I don't see any volume of business happening today unless we see something a lot closer to the 400 mark. This may or may not be achievable later down the line, but I don't see a strong enough reason to press the button today. Guide prices for this week, circa Friday morning. Feed wheat, September 170 to 180. November 175 to 185. May 185 to 190, with Group 1 milling premiums for new crop holding over £60. 
Feed barley September 150 to 160, October 155 to 165, May 160 to 165, with multi barley premiums varying but seeing highs of over £80. All seed rape 360 to 370. That's all for this week. As usual, please call for firm values. Thanks as ever, Alice. The Farming Programme. Five day forecast. A better week. Hooray! Warmer and dry with sunshine at least until Friday. Just a very light breeze today, indeed for most of the week, starting southwesterly and veering easterly in midweek. Highs in the mid-20s Celsius for Sunday and Monday. Cloudier today, but the sun appears tomorrow and Tuesday, but turning much cloudier on Wednesday. Staying warm and dry, though, with highs around 24. The back end of the week turns a couple of degrees cooler and rains forecast on Friday. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the podcast edition of The Farming Programme, available wherever you get your podcast and on the free Lynx FM app or ask your smart speaker to play the latest farming programme. I'm Steve Orchard. Until next time, have a great week. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.